0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the
1: Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Today's episode of Horror Hail is brought to you by Best Fiends, the critically acclaimed puzzle-based adventure game, available for download now on your mobile device of choice. I'll tell you a bit more about our sponsor later on tonight. Until then, double-check your doors and windows and settle in. Darkness is at your door, and it can't wait to join you. The following program is intended for mature audiences and may contain strong language, adult themes, and content of a violent and sexual nature, which may not be appropriate for everyone. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. If it's the darkness you seek, you won't be disappointed. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and it's time for our appointment. In this place, there is no sun. And nightmares do come true. Here, instead of shadow falling, the shadows follow you. Consider getting comfortable before the air grows colder. Prepare yourself, if you dare. Come, inch a little closer. If darkness is what you're after, seek no searches through you haven't found the darkness traveler the darkness (laughs) has found you (laughs) welcome to season two episode 12 i'm your host jason hill And I'm thrilled you could join me tonight. In today's episode, we bring you two bone-chilling tales from Mark Lukens and Michael Whitehouse about fearful festivals and tunnels to pure terror where the past never dies and always hungers. You're listening to the Standard Edition of this program. Allow me to escort you to a place where the sun dies and nightmares come to life, where those who seek the darkness need look no further. Welcome, listener, to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. For our first story tonight, Halloween comes early this year for a young couple, inheriting an old house in a new town. But it's a town with its own Halloween traditions, where masks are worn to hunt other treats than candy, and the trick rides a creaky wagon in the dead of night. Without further ado... From author Mark Lukens, I give you The Coffin Man. You're saying that there's no trick or treating allowed here tonight? Dennis asked. He stood in the middle of the murky second floor bedroom. Kara walked over to a set of windows and pulled the curtains back. Dust motes danced in the golden afternoon light all around her. It's against the law? Dennis asked. I didn't say that, Kara answered without turning around to look at him. She stared out the windows that looked down onto the street. It's hard to explain. It's just something they don't do here. Kara had said the word they like she wasn't one of them, even though she lived in this village as a child. Dennis had agreed to come up here, to this tiny town, tucked away in a forgotten corner of Maine, after Kara told him that her grandmother had passed away. She'd said her grandmother was wealthy, and had left her some stuff in a will. But, so far, Dennis wasn't very impressed. He guessed the woman had been wealthy in the context of this little town. Dennis had noticed, as soon as they'd entered the town earlier in the day, that there were no Halloween decorations anywhere. Even though it was Halloween. Well, there were decorations, but strange ones. Pumpkins with no faces carved into them. Stalks of dried corn and bales of hay stacked up near the pumpkins. Little straw men and stick figures crafted from twigs and twine hanging on front doors and windows. They had driven into town on a remote county road that intersected with the other main road, the town square. In the center of the square was a large field, and in the middle of that field a fifteen-foot-tall stick figure had been constructed with more stalks of dried corn and bales of hay bunched up at the figure's feet. There was a school-slash-church at the far end of the town square, and a few businesses lined both sides of the square, including a city hall, a post office, and a volunteer fire department. The homes around the square and the ones on the side of the streets looked old, maybe at least a hundred years old, but everything looked meticulously taken care of. On the outskirts of the village were some farms, some large, some small, and then there was nothing but woods as far as the eye could see. The village was quaint, even beautiful in its own timeless way. The few people he'd met earlier in the day seemed friendly, but there was something conspiratorial about them. He felt watched, like he was an outsider to be wary of. They didn't know how to describe it, but they all seemed nervous and tense, like they were scared of something. Kara's grandmother's home was only two blocks away from the center of town on the corner of the main road and a side street. It was a three-story Victorian-style home. "'What about the kids?' Dennis asked as he watched Kara at the windows of her grandmother's bedroom. "'Halloween should be for kids.' We just don't do it here, she practically snapped at him. Dennis didn't say anything for a moment. Kara was tense. She was obviously upset about her grandmother, and he thought he should leave her alone. She had missed her grandmother's funeral a week ago, and now she was here to take care of a few legal matters and pick through some things at her grandmother's house. He thought about walking over to her and touching her, holding her, comforting her in some way, but he didn't. She turned around and looked at him. I'm sorry, I'm just... Hey, he said, and now he was across the room in a flash. It's okay, I understand. Kara had already lost her mother a few years ago, but she'd never gone into too much detail about her death. Her dad had run off when Kara had been a baby, and she'd never heard from him again. She didn't have any brothers and sisters. Her grandmother was all she had left in the world. And Dennis knew how she felt. He wasn't close to his family. Most of them gone now, too. It was one of the things that had drawn them to each other. He wanted to change the subject, start over somehow. Instead, he hugged her, a gentle squeeze. I'm, uh, I'm gonna grab a beer, he said thinking he should give her some time alone up here. He had a cooler full of beers downstairs. Kara had told him to bring his own beer because they didn't sell alcohol in town. She nodded and turned back to the windows, staring down at the street. Dennis left her alone. They ate a dinner of sandwiches they had brought with them in the cooler, and Dennis was finishing up his fourth beer. The sun was setting the shadows of the spooky old house growing long, taking over. Kara had turned on the kitchen light and lit some candles in the living room, but they struggled to push back the oncoming darkness. Kara got up and walked to a coat closet in the living room across from the front door. She pulled out one of those stick figure things that Dennis had seen hanging on the other people's doors and windows all over town. That looks like something from the Blair Witch Project... Dennis joked as he watched her. Grandma would have wanted it on her front door tonight. What are those stick figures supposed to mean? he asked. She shrugged as she opened the front door and hung the figure on a hook over the pane of glass. She closed the door and locked it. Oh, it's just a tradition. Something we've always done on Halloween night to keep foo. She stopped like she'd said too much... She had that nervous look in her eyes like everyone else he'd seen in town. What? he asked. Um, nothing. Tell me. (laughs) He wouldn't believe me. They went back to the table in the kitchen, back to the light. Dennis opened another bottle of beer. Tell me, he pressed. Kara sat down at the table... It's kind of scary. I could go for a scary story on Halloween night. There was nothing else to do here. No TV or internet. No cell phone service. And in the despondent mood Kara was in, he wasn't even going to suggest sex. She was quiet for a moment, like she was trying to find the right way to explain things. We don't celebrate Halloween tonight. But there is this... This tradition we have. The stick figures? Dennis said. She nodded. They're supposed to ward off the coffin man. Dennis almost laughed. He wanted to laugh. But a twinge of fear knifed through him from the expression on Kara's face. She was really scared. The coffin man always comes on Halloween night. Kara said, her voice lower. Eyes cast down. We'll be okay as long as we stay inside. Dennis was quiet for a moment as he watched Kara. (laughs) Come on, you don't really believe that kind of stuff, do you? She stared at him, dead serious now. Whatever you do, don't peek out the windows tonight. If you hear noises outside, don't look. The coffin man will ride through town on his flat cart that's pulled by two black horses. He's dressed all in black with a black hood over his head, like an executioner. He has four lanterns on his cart at all four corners, and on the back there's a coffin. If he sees you... She let her words trail off. Dennis wanted to ask how she knew what the coffin man looked like if no one was allowed to peek out the windows at him, but he didn't want to push his luck. She seemed different now, not the same Kara he'd fallen for over the last eight months. He wondered if she was really this disturbed from her grandmother's passing. She was alone now, but he promised that he would be there for her. They were both alone now, but they would always have each other. He got up and gave her a gentle hug and then a kiss on top of her head. Don't worry, I'll protect you from the coffin, man. But Kara was not laughing. Dennis woke up in the dark. He and Kara had gone to bed around 9.30, sleeping in a guest room upstairs that he suspected used to be her bedroom when she was a child, even though she hadn't said as much. Moonlight managed to stream in around the curtains drawn over the window, and he saw that he was alone in the bed. He was thirsty, a little dehydrated from the eight beers he'd downed earlier in the evening. He'd fallen into a fitful sleep next to Kara, but now she was gone. Kara? No answer. Maybe she'd gone downstairs, or she'd gone across the hall to her grandmother's room. He sat up and then got to his feet. Something had woken him. Some kind of noise. He checked his cell phone on the table next to the bed. It was 10.30. He'd only been asleep for an hour. He still didn't have cell phone service here, but he used the illumination from his phone like a flashlight to guide his way to the bedroom door. He stepped out into the hall. The door to Kara's grandmother's room was halfway open and Dennis heard a noise coming from inside. Maybe it was the same noise that had woken him up. Kara? Still no answer. He crept across the hall, the floorboards creaking beneath his footsteps, ancient wood popping. He pushed the door all the way open and his phone shut off, plunging him back into darkness. Shit, he whispered and pressed the button to light up his phone again. He shined the meager light in front of him and entered the bedroom. Moonlight filtered into the flimsy curtains over the row of windows that looked down onto the street. Kara wasn't in the room. Noises were coming from outside. A steady noise. And it took him a moment to recognize the sound. The clopping of horses' hooves. Dennis was drawn toward the windows, almost like he was in a trance. Before he even realized what he was doing, he had one of the curtains pushed aside. He stared down at the street and saw the coffin man. The lanterns on the cart illuminated the man dressed all in black. He sat on a buckboard with the reins guiding his horses in his gloved hands. He wore some kind of black mask over his face underneath a tall hat and on the back of the cart was a simple wood coffin. The coffin man pulled gently on the reins halting his horses. He stared up at the window right at Dennis. Dennis let the curtain fall back in place over the window and backed away quickly. You let him see you? Kara said from across the room Dennis jumped turning around to look at Kara in the doorway You scared the hell out of me He breathed out as he lit up his phone again and walked toward her and then he stopped He saw the horror on her face She was trembling shaking her head no She had a look in her eyes like all hope was lost now Kara? You weren't supposed to look out the window. Her eyes were wide and moist like she was about to cry. I told you not to look out the window. That guy out there. This has to be some kind of prank or something. A pounding sounded from downstairs. Someone was banging on the front door. Kara stifled a scream. He's at the door now. He's going to keep coming for you. He won't stop. He'll never stop. (sighs) This is crazy, Dennis told her. We need to call the police. He dialed 911 on his cell phone, but the call wouldn't go through. He still didn't have any service to his phone. Does your grandmother have a phone? He asked, even though he didn't remember seeing one. She shook her head no. The pounding downstairs was louder. It sounded like the man was going to break the door down. Come on, Dennis said. He used his cell phone to light his way back to the guest bedroom. He found his jeans crumpled up on the seat of an antique chair and pulled them on, and then he slipped his feet into his sneakers. He made sure he had his car keys in his pants pocket. Kara was still fully dressed. They hurried downstairs. The pounding of the door was even louder down here. The large pane of glass in the front door rattled every time the coffin man beat on the wood with his fist. Go away! Dennis yelled at the man beyond the door. The coffin man looked tall. He looked bigger now that Dennis saw him up close. Just a black and bulky shape outside the door. We've called the police! He lied. The relentless pounding continued in a maddening rhythm. Leave us alone! Dennis yelled at the door backing up deeper into the living room. The coffin man smashed his gloved hand through the glass in the front door, knocking the twig man Kara had hung on the door out of the way. He reached inside, groping for the doorknob. What the hell? For a moment, Dennis was too shocked to move, staring in disbelief as the coffin man twisted the lock at the doorknob, opening the door. This... Was no prank. Come on! Dennis grabbed Kara's wrist and pulled her into the kitchen. There's nowhere we can run to, Kara said, pulling back on Dennis. You shouldn't have looked out the window. I told you not to look! Stop it, Kara! He snapped. He pulled her toward the back door in the kitchen that led outside. They just needed to get around the house to the driveway, to his car. Once they were in his car, they could get away. They got to the door and Dennis heard the coffin man stomping to the house, getting closer. He pulled Kara outside, down the steps toward the side of the house. It still seemed like she was resisting, pulling on him as hard as he was pulling on her. When they were twenty feet away from the door, Kara yanked her hand out of Dennis's hand. What are you doing? he hissed at her. And then... He saw the coffin man in the doorway to the kitchen. The coffin man just stood there, watching them. He's right behind you, Dennis told Kara. We gotta go! Kara stood in the darkness, the moonlight shining down on her, and Dennis saw the realization dawning on her. He only wants you, she said. Dennis heard a noise right behind him, the snapping of a twig from a footstep. He turned around and saw the coffin man right in front of him, a sickle gripped in the man's gloved hand. The last thing Dennis wondered was how the coffin man had gotten behind him so quickly. And then, the butt of the sickle's handle struck him in the side of his head, and the world went black. It was close to midnight when the coffin man drove his buggy toward the gigantic stick figure in the middle of the town square. The stick figure already ablaze, burning brightly in the night. The townspeople had gathered, all of the men dressed in black with hoods and hats. They were all the coffin man. Kara, now dressed in white along with all of the other women in town... Watched as the coffin men unloaded the coffin from the buggy and laid it down on the bed of straw in front of the gigantic burning stick figure. She knew that the coffin had already been drenched in a resin that would allow it to burn easily. She could hear Dennis thrashing around inside the sturdy pine box, bashing himself against the walls, beating at the top of it, screaming. But there was no escape for him. Kara's grandmother approached her. She touched Kara gently, and then they watched together as some of the coffin men grabbed at the ropes attached to the giant stick figure and pulled it down on top of the coffin as the midnight bell rang from the church steeple. The coffin caught fire immediately. This sacrifice would help the town through the winter, appease the ancient gods in the spring, and make the ground fertile, allow for a bountiful harvest in the fall. Is this the last one for me? Kara asked her grandmother. No, my child. Bring us another sacrifice next Halloween. You've been listening to The Coffin Man by author Mark Lukens. It would seem, dear listeners, that even if you decide not to go out for Halloween, Halloween might just come in for you. (laughs) If you enjoyed The Coffin Man... Be sure to check out Mark's latest audiobook, Sleep Disorders. The heart-pounding story of a man searching for his missing wife and finding a terrible truth that will push him into the center of a conspiracy that turns dreams into nightmares and reality into madness. Narrated by yours truly. Check out the link in the show notes to pick up sleep disorders on Audible.com today. We've got another tale to terrify coming up shortly. Before I proceed, however, I'd like to tell you a bit more about tonight's first sponsor, Best Fiends. The unique and exciting puzzle experience unlike other puzzle games out there. Best Fiends. A five-star rated puzzle gaming challenge for adults puts you, the player, at the forefront of a ragtag team of plucky insects and a few assorted other species, engaged in an all-out puzzle brawl with an ever encroaching army of disgusting slugs. With intuitive controls, simplified tutorial, a finely tuned precision difficulty curve, adaptive reward system, and a gratifying array of unlockable, upgradable, and super cute characters for your team. This singularly unique puzzle gaming experience will provide you with endless enjoyment that you can share with other players on social media. And you can take it with you. Enjoy Best Fiends anywhere at home, school, work, or just about anywhere. Because no internet connection is required, I was able to play Best Fiends at the top of a 14er I recently summited. Pretty awesome, right? Yeah, honestly, I could just spend hours upgrading and evolving my insect crew, mixing, matching, and arranging all my available weapons to pummel those slugs into the primordial ooze from whence they came. So what are you waiting for? Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, best fiends, and always let them know that you heard about it here first. We really appreciate it.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality.
1: Now that I have given you the gift that keeps on giving, courtesy of Best Fiends, allow me to regale you with tonight's second tale of terror and lead you from the crisp air of October night to the endless subterranean dark of old Europe's catacombs, where a team of underground engineers digs into a secret that threatens to bury them all. From author Michael Whitehouse, I give you Tunnel 72-F. I once knew a man who was afraid of nothing. No monstrosity man-made or fictitious could subdue his spirits, and the mere mention of the word supernatural would elicit a most cynical laugh. This bravery was both his greatest strength and his most profound weakness, for ignorance and heedlessness can often be disguised as a deep and foolhardy sense of courage. He was to learn the limits of his bravery under the earth, down in those oppressive tunnels, deep below the streets of Amsterdam. His name was Henke, due mainly to his Finnish ancestry on his father's side. And although his parents had passed away at an early age, he believed with conviction that his courage came from them. It was a matter of pride, a connection to the family he had lost, and it was this above all else which drove him into places and situations where others feared to tread. I had met him four years earlier while traveling with some friends on a common rite of passage, backpacking through Europe during a university break. He and a few of his friends were on a similar adventure, and happened to be staying at the same youth hostel in Rome. Both groups got along well, but it was with Henke that I struck up an immediate rapport. He was a keen musician. Like him, I was, at the time, still filled with self-promise. Or, should I say, delusion of stardom through my own musical pursuits. Our friendship grew over the subsequent years mostly via email, swapping musical discoveries, talking about politics, and generally getting to know each other as best two people can through simple correspondence. Traveling was also a must for both of us due to work commitments. On the odd occasion, we would find ourselves in the same country and enjoyed meeting up for a few laughs. And of course, he always knew which local pub served the tastiest beer, as well as which restaurants to best avoid. It was eleven months ago that I visited Henke in Amsterdam. The Dutch city seemed to be a good fit for him as he always liked to live in the liveliest of places. The countless meandering canals, bridges and walkways, swamped by the footsteps of a million tourists each year, appealed to his love of vibrancy and history. Amsterdam had seen many a traumatic occurrence since its inception, right up to and including the Second World War. Henke found himself in the city as he had been recently hired to carry out important maintenance work on the Rijksmuseum, one of Amsterdam's most impressive buildings. When I met him in a small darkened corner of a local pub, well away from the burgeoning tourist trade, I was shocked by his appearance. Here was a friend I knew as being larger than life and exuding bravado, and yet what I saw was a shell of a man, slight in stature, racked with self-doubt. His sunken, anxious gaze worried me, and so I did my best to provide a kind ear to ease his burden. Among the murmurs of fellow drinkers nearby from that darkened corner of the pub, he began to tell me of the events which had led to his precarious condition. What he told me then, I will tell you now. Henke had been working as a civil engineer for some time and relished the challenge of renovating the Rijksmuseum a building with a long and compelling history. The museum housed Amsterdam's finest collection of historical relics, and being given access to some of its more hidden places, which were inaccessible to the general public, piqued his fascination for the obscured and unique. He had been hired to lead a maintenance crew assigned to assess and repair the building's foundations. This oldest part of the structure dated back centuries. and had a most bizarre and... It must be said, quite horrific history. The Reichsmuseum itself had been constructed in 1885, but it had been built on top of an earlier structure which possessed a much older and unusual past. I knew immediately that this would appeal to Henke as he often spoke of the fond memories he had as a child, exploring vacant buildings, passageways and caves near where he grew up. As a child, he loved nothing more than to lead his friends into places they would otherwise have avoided. The dark held no fear for him, nothing but the promise of hidden secrets and the opportunity to show his bravery to those around him. In the bowels of the museum, under its marble floors and deep red brickwork, lay a labyrinth of abandoned tunnels which at one time served as part of the old city's sewer network. They had long been disused and fallen into disrepair, but they were nonetheless an essential part of the building's foundations and had to be assessed and repaired. If not, the entire structure would be in danger of subsiding. The ground and upper levels of the museum were beautiful, displaying many wonderful historical relics from all over the world. On his first day on the job, Hanky wandered around the artifacts before starting his shift, especially interested in the war exhibition... Gas masks, uniforms, bullets, and dog tags of soldiers bloodied and forgotten all populated the sealed glass display cabinets. A group of children ran after their mother nearby, laughing and pointing at the weapons on show, imitating the sounds of explosions and gunfire. Families moved in regimented fashion from hall to hall, room to room, some talking about the violent history on display, Others involved in more important conversations, such as which dinosaur toy to get from the gift shop. So bright, welcoming, and warm was the atmosphere of the building that it was difficult to imagine the darkness which festered below. After some quick words with the building manager, Henke proceeded to an old, seldom-used room at the back of the museum. It housed an antiquated cage-like elevator covered in rust which was used by the maintenance crews to access the lower levels and sewers underneath. Pulling on a pair of dirt-covered yellow overalls, complete with hard hat and headlamp, he entered the elevator for his first descent. Pressing a cracked button, the elevator creaked into life and chugged slowly downward on a rattling chain and squeaky pulley. As the elevator delved deeper towards the abandoned sewers, Henke thought to himself that those of a nervous disposition might have let such a dank and isolated place prey on their minds. This may have explained why the previous man in charge of the repairs had left so abruptly, citing nervous exhaustion and refusing to so much as set foot in those pitch-black corridors of cold stone ever again. The elevator winch and engine stuttered as it lowered Henke down four levels into the basement. With each passing floor he observed a slight dimming of the lights, and each subterranean level appeared more sparse and stone-like than the one before. A rusted plate attached to the elevator betrayed its age. It struck Henke that the year of its construction, 1932, must have been among the last periods of maintenance carried out there before the occupation of the Nazi army. He knew much of the shameful history of the region as he was part Jewish, and his great-grandfather had died during the Holocaust. Many had fled to Amsterdam for sanctuary from the Nazi regime in the early 1930s, but the long, blighting arm of Hitler's horrific Final Solution eventually reached the borders of the Netherlands, sweeping many thousands away to those shameful and barbaric concentration camps. With a shudder, the elevator ground to a halt, and, after forcing the grated sliding door aside... Henke disembarked. The old sewer tunnels spread out before him and were curious in construction, steeped in a history which stretched back much farther into the distant past than that of the museum itself. Having spoken to his employers, he had been specifically told to pay heed to the assessment and repair crew's knowledge of the tunnel layout as the place could be disorienting. The lighting system required to illuminate the maintenance work had not been fully installed yet. His new employers, up above in cushy office buildings miles away, seemed unusually concerned that he would find it all too easy to get lost down there. Most importantly, he was informed that the two-way radios, normally used to communicate between team members when underground, had been acting up and that they were unreliable due to interference, probably produced by nearby metallic deposits in the ground. This meant that when interference made communication impossible, he and his crew could only communicate verbally or by using light from their torches to convey simple messages via Morse code. This was particularly useful in longer tunnels as a crew person's yells would often echo and contort in such a way as to be almost unintelligible. In any case, it struck Henke that the catacombs below really were isolated and lonely places, even more so with intermittent communication to the world above. Care would have to be taken... But he did feel a nostalgic sense of excitement for a hidden world, begging to be explored, like all those days spent looking for adventure as a child. After standing in the small brick elevator room waiting to meet his new colleagues, Henke was glad to finally see another person. Jones, second in command of the maintenance crew, appeared from around a corner, whistling to himself while his headlight bobbed and weaved to the sound of feet through inches of stagnant water. Heavy-set and rosy-cheeked with a wide grin which had told a thousand jokes, Jones was the type of person Henke instantly knew he would enjoy working alongside. After a few pleasantries, Jones debriefed Henke on the current progress being made, informing him that the initial mapping and assessments of the tunnels had gone well. All in all, there were sixteen four-people repair crews, each of which was assigned a section of the sewers, Henke would oversee the entire operation, but he knew that he would need to directly supervise two of the crews working in one of the more isolated tunnels. The walls there were in precarious condition, and if they were not careful, a cave-in could occur. It was his priority to make sure that did not happen. After walking for fifteen minutes, both men arrived at the section of tunnels which would be Henke's focus for the next few months. The sound of occasional drilling could be heard in the distance as the workers continued to install the still non-operational lighting system. As the four-person crew assigned to that vicinity would be working further away from the other crews, it had been decided that they would have their lighting installed last. Henke did not like this due to some of the crumbling brickwork which was already visible to him. The idea of a crew drilling only by the light of their headlamps when the work required a delicate hand made Henke cautious. He was brave, but not reckless with the lives of his colleagues. He made a mental note to prioritize the lighting installation in that section to lower the risks to his team. Each passageway seemed oddly shaped, with no two tunnels being quite alike. That entire section of the sewer was so antiquated that it had been built long before the careful planning of such constructions had become commonplace. One tunnel would arch forward for over several hundred meters in a strange semicircle while others bisected it at right angles, carrying on in a regimented straight line into the darkness. Henke even found a passageway that seemed to dip and rise only to slither its way along in an unnatural S-shape. Some tunnels seemed to go on forever. Others stumped abruptly as if the original builders had been unable to complete their work, leaving in a hurry. Jones tried to keep the conversation light... And, with a man's experience of walking through the tunnels for the previous two months, Henke was glad to have a guide to show him the way. Waiting in a large alcove was the four man team assigned to that area. They would work that section of the tunnels during the day, while the other shift would take over later, working through the night. Jones introduced each of them. They seemed nice enough, but Henke was surprised to find the men largely in the grip of silence. In such jobs, humor was normally found in abundance, with repair crews using it to slice through the monotony of working in such cramped and repetitive conditions. Here, though, he found them uttering not one word beyond a monotone greeting. Sitting in silence in that imposing alcove, removed from any consideration of camaraderie or fellowship, the only inference that they were not a collection of subterranean statues was the occasional movement of their headlamps, altering the shadows around them. They seemed wholly disconnected from, not just each other, but the very environment in which they worked. Henke brushed this feeling of unease aside and committed himself to cultivating conversation. If these men were in some way angry or uncomfortable with one another, then he would soon lay that to rest. A happy workforce is a productive one. The first order of business was to survey that section of tunnels and decide where repairs were most pressing. Preliminary assessments had already been made, but Henke liked to evaluate any repair project he was involved in personally. He walked the catacombs with his team and noticed immediately that they were still on edge, that they seemed frightened in an almost childlike way. No amount of questions, casual or otherwise, could elicit anything other than one word broken replies. Slowly, they toured the winding grid of tunnels, lighting their way with the small torches attached to their safety helmets while taking notes about failing walls, water damage, and estimations of any possible repair time. Twice Henke pressed the men on their obvious sense of fear, asking why such an experienced crew, who no doubt had worked in many tunnels before, were so apprehensive of mere bricks and mortar. They avoided the questions. Looking nervously at one another, they would change the topic of conversation with monotone lethargy whenever it veered towards their experiences of the old sewers or of their previous supervisor's unceremonious departure from the job. It began to dawn on Henke that the men's verbal and physical awkwardness was not the result of tensions between workers, but rather of a deep-seated and worrying apprehension. Of what? He did not know. What was clear was that his team were counting down the minutes until their shift ended when they could finally clamber out of the darkness into the safety and sunshine of the world above. As the beam from his headlamp trickled over the damp and crumbling brickwork, Henke again conceded to himself that some may find such a setting unnerving, but not him. Whatever had caused such trepidation and disquiet among the other men was surely a simple case of idle superstition... Mischief-making, or the understandable psychological toll of working in a dark, cramped and forgotten part of the city. Even Jones, who had through most of the catacombs been jovial and talkative, now adopted the same sullen expression and serious disposition as they made their way deeper into the oldest part of the sewers. The passages wound and meandered their way through the ground long, steady trajectories intermittently and abruptly interrupted by sharp, blind corners, making it difficult for Henge to identify exactly where they were. There were so many winding corridors that he felt disoriented and was ready to joke with his men that, if they didn't like him as a boss, they could probably leave him there and he would never find his way out. But his men were no longer beside him. He was standing at the mouth of a tunnel, and while he had continued onward... Talking, trying to fill in the difficult silences, his men had stopped at the last junction. They stood motionless, some twenty feet behind, staring at Henke with blank expressions, occasionally betrayed by the slightest flicker of a very real and gripping emotion beneath. A look of suppressed terror. When he asked why the men were not following... They whispered in reply that where they stood was where the last of the repair work was needed. Pulling out a map and perusing it intently by the light of his headlamp, Henke surmised that he must have wandered into the remotest part of the sewer network, at the back of the catacombs, and, while the tunnels continued into the foreboding distance, where he now stood must have marked the boundary of the Rijksmuseum's foundations. What confused him, however was that the area had been clearly listed on the map for repair. He was standing at the entrance to what appeared to be a rather innocuous tunnel, but on the wall next to the opening, he could clearly see that someone had placed an identification plaque there, marking it for repair. It read, Tunnel 72F, Water Damage and Failing Masonry. After double-checking the map, it was clear to Henke that Tunnel 72F was indeed still under the Wright Museum's foundations and had to be appraised and repaired. But when he told his men this, they simply informed him that where they stood was as far as they would go. Anger began to take over, accompanied by frustration that the team he was supposed to be supervising was being so difficult. But even raising his voice and demanding that they head into the tunnel did not move them. Just as things became increasingly heated and Henge yelled at the men to do as he said, Jones interjected, We've worked down here for two months, boss. This is a good, hard-working, talented crew you have. They'll do exactly as you ask when you ask it, but you'll have to accept that for them and me. Our work stops at this junction, and that none of us will go near that tunnel. You might think it's mad, but whether you want to believe it or not, there's something in there. Taking a deep breath and calming himself, Henke explained to his men that he understood the stress induced by working in such a suffocating environment for an extended period of time, but that repairs had to be carried out in full. He would talk to them later about it, but for now, he would carry out the survey himself. For a moment there was silence broken only by drips of unseen water which echoed out from a distant, unsure place. As Henke stepped over the threshold and into the apparently forbidden tunnel, Jones and the other men protested vehemently, shouting at him to leave the passageway immediately. But he saw this demonstration as nothing but foolishness. He was not to be swayed by unsubstantiated superstitious nonsense. There was nothing in that tunnel to fear. Just as he had done when he was a child, he would once more prove to others that they should not be so scared. By stepping up, being a man, and pushing forward into places others feared to tread. Pride coursed through his veins. His parents were brave and fearless before him, and he had long since sworn to always be bold, always be adventurous, to be just like them. With a smile, he looked back at his men before heading face-first into the darkness, the excitement of self-reliance pushing him on. While the tunnel seemed fairly common in its construction at first glance, as he progressed deeper into its dank innards, it was apparent that this was unlike any sewer he had seen. The ground was uneven. The floor dipped and rose, much like some of the other tunnels, but what was peculiar was how fractured the surface felt under his feet. The ground was obscured by a thick, almost oily water, which in places reached up as high as his knees. He trudged through the stagnant liquid slowly. Not because he was scared, but simply to ensure sound footing. One thing was apparent. However, long ago the water had deposited there, it was long enough to fester and produce an unpleasant, rotting stench. The walls were of a different, significantly older composition than most of the brickwork he had seen in the sewers elsewhere. Whatever the material was which had been used, it was hundreds of years old. It was obviously failing, with long, penetrating cracks scarring the surface of the increasingly unstable walls and ceiling. The light from his headlamp was enough to illuminate much of the tunnel, but, as Henke ventured further towards what he thought was a dead end, he realized that the passageway was narrowing and that the tunnel itself did not stop there, but rather tapered slightly before curving abruptly around a blind corner. He estimated being over 100 feet into the sewer, and while his curiosity for what could be beyond the corner urged him to move forward, he believed he had made his point and would now ask his men to abandon their fears and enter the tunnel with him. Unholstering the black handheld radio he had been issued from his side, he began requesting for Jones and the others to meet him at the corner of the tunnel. No one responded, and nothing but a quiet buzz could be heard from the radio speaker. Of course, Henke now remembered that he had been warned about how unreliable the radios were, but just as he was about to turn and shout back down towards the opening, something caught his eye. Surely not. There should have been nothing in that disgusting place but stagnant water and himself. And yet... Pulling and pushing relentlessly against his bravado and self assured disposition was the creeping realization that something was standing at the end of the tunnel. Obscured mostly by the blind corner, he could only see a sliver of it, but it was unmistakable. A ragged piece of cloth poked out from around the corner, and although Henke's mind was unwilling to accept it, the cloth was obviously part of his sleeve a sleeve that contained an arm belonging to who or what he did not know. Stubbornness can be an effective tonic for even the most horrifying and unbelievable situations. Henke's confidence in himself and his long history of triumphs over fear and adversity welled up inside of him. Filling his chest with confidence and with a strong assured stride, he gulped down a breath of the damp air and marched purposefully towards whatever was around that corner. The slush and slosh of the black water echoed throughout the tunnel as he made his way to the blind turn, almost hesitating as he reached it, an unease that was alien to him. Apprehension now turned to sadness and empathy for standing there in that cruel, dark passageway, shivering and disheveled, was a girl who could not have seen more than thirteen years. Her face and hands were blackened with grime and dirt, hiding her pale and malnourished frame. A ripped shirt was all that she wore, hanging from her loosely with much of her body exposed to the cold of that damp, isolated place. Gazing at him between strands of dirty, blonde, matted hair, Henke was struck by how beautiful the young girl was. And how afraid she must have been. How frightened and helpless. At first he believed that she must have somehow entered the sewers and lost her way. But no matter how softly he spoke, she would not answer, appearing afraid and nervous. He tried his radio again but was greeted with the same meaningless static. Regardless, he had to get her out of that tunnel, back through the sewers and into the Reichsmuseum, and seen by a doctor, He didn't want to shout to his men in case the noise startled her and added to the girl's disquiet. The last thing he wanted to do was chase her through the catacombs, so he decided to lead her out of the passage himself. As he approached, he spoke gently to her in Dutch, explaining that he would take her up above to safety. Stepping forward with his hand outstretched, the girl seemed to quiver in fear. She appeared terrified of him. This made Henke feel uncomfortable as he prided himself on being someone who would do anything to protect the vulnerable. Someone to be trusted, not feared. She made no sound, but as he reached her, she raised her left hand slowly, pointing one finger at the light on his head. He suddenly realized that the sharp light from the headlamp must have been frightening her, so he took the light off and held it in his hand to allay her fears the lamp now casting shadows upward more starkly. The changed angle of light brought something unsettling to Henke's attention. Pinned to the girl's torn shirt was a yellow cloth star. It surprised him as it was entirely familiar, but it took a moment for his mind to grasp the memory. It was exactly like the yellow stars forced upon the Jewish populations during their persecution— to allow members of the Nazi regime and their conspirators to identify them. That can't be. Henke's mind fought against the ramifications of such discovery. After a momentary pause, he once again was resolute, disregarding the cloth star and asserting to himself that he had to take the poor girl out of such horrible surroundings. A tremendous sense of unexplained sadness overcame him as he drew closer. The torch flickered unusually in his hand as he looked down at the girl, her face momentarily illuminated by the shifting light, her arms still outstretched, pointing at him. He would carry her out of the sewers if need be, but this sense of duty, this compulsion to be brave and assertive in even the darkest of places was now replaced by something which Henke had never felt before. Running up his spine... And from the very pit of his stomach, fear gripped him, terror took him, and a horror possessed him so potently that it made him unsteady, anxious, weak. For Henke had not noticed something so subtle yet essential to his predicament. The girl had not stopped pointing at him as he drew closer. Her arm was rigid and her finger remained outstretched. Even the light, which was now in his hand, seemed entirely unimportant to her. Realization swept over him like a plague of abject dread. The girl was not pointing at the light. She was pointing behind him. Tenkay did not remember much more of what happened at that tunnel, but he knew that he had indeed turned to face whatever had been standing behind him, whatever the girl had been pointing at. He thanked God, something he was not normally inclined to do, that Jones and those men who feared that dark hollow so acutely had shown true courage, running into the passageway as soon as they heard his screams. NK regained his composure back at the alcove where he had met the men as they were carrying him out, but he immediately pleaded with them that they take him out of the tunnels to the world above, which is what they did. Once the rusted elevator reached the ground floor of the Rijksmuseum, they sat together in a small room at the back of the building and had a frank discussion about what had been happening down there over the past two months. Jones explained that the first survey team which had encountered that specific sewer passageway... resigned from their posts after just one night down there. A week later, one of their co-workers who decided to stay on... committed suicide after complaining repeatedly to everyone... that he could hear whispers coming from somewhere as he worked nearby. Not long after that, Jones's previous supervisor, the man Henke had replaced saw someone, an unidentified figure, standing at the mouth of Tunnel 72F and had followed it inside. One of the cleanup crews found him shortly after, crawling out of the sewer on his hands and knees, crying hysterically like a child. He had been hospitalized and heavily medicated ever since, but no one knew exactly what he had seen down there. He would not speak of it, but the men who recovered him claimed he was repeating only one word when he was found. Just one word. Over and over again frantically Nazi. 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 Henke was a nervous wreck after his experience and ordered that no one under any circumstances be allowed to go into Tunnel 72F. He continued to work down in the other sewer passageways, day after day in the dark, but he was consumed by the notion that he had seen something so frightening, so terrifying, that he had forced himself to forget the ordeal. Over the next few weeks, he lost weight and had trouble sleeping often waking up in a disturbed state, drenched in a cold sweat, unable to recall what he had been dreaming about. The very idea that he, above all people, brave Hinke, could be reduced to such fragility that he could be affected so deeply by something he could not even remember in its entirety, preyed upon his pride and his sense of self-worth. His bravery had always defined him. And now, it was gone. In an effort to combat the feelings of helplessness and self-loathing, he attempted to find out all he could about the tunnels under the Reichsmuseum. Knowledge, as they say, is power. And my friend felt that if he knew more about the place and the dark, that he would somehow be less afraid of it. He read about the history of the museum on the nights he could not sleep. And while he found very little of it helpful, one local legend struck a chord within him. It was rumored that during the Second World War, a number of Jewish families took refuge in the tunnels below the Reichsmuseum. When two SS officers were tipped off as to their whereabouts, they entered the tunnels with some local volunteers, hoping to arrest the people down there and then most probably send them off to a concentration camp. The rumors were that the families managed to ambush the SS officers and their Nazi sympathizers, killing them and dumping their bodies somewhere in the sewers. This was the story Henke related to me when I met him in Amsterdam. It was sad to see him so shaken and vulnerable, a strong, powerful individual who had never shown so much as a hint of fear for, or of... Anything in his life. A friend who I respected greatly, one with such indelible character, to be reduced to a diminished man living on his nerves. He thanked me for listening to his burdens, and I regrettably had to leave shortly afterward to catch a flight back to Glasgow. Unfortunately, the story does not end there. Some men are haunted both by what they have seen... and by what they cannot understand. Ego can be a terrible burden for anyone. Once it is fractured or damaged... the lasting effects can be devastating. Enkei could not let go of his pride... nor his desire to feel strong again. whole. He had never been afraid of anything before... and no matter what was in that tunnel... No matter how much anyone attempted to dissuade him, he was determined to confront it and reclaim his self-belief. Three days later, Henke's body was found at the mouth of Tunnel 72F, stuffed into an old duffel bag. It was a heart attack which had killed him, but whoever broke twisted and shoved his body into that morbid sack after he died was never caught. I should mention that the bag was of peculiar interest to the police in the event that it could reveal something about Henke's death. It was traced to Germany, military issue, and had not been manufactured since 1941. You've been listening to Tunnel 72F by Michael Whitehouse. It seems that those who go digging through the past... risk finding their own graves. You won't catch me dead in a place like that. I'll take the high country any day... where the bitter wind blows... under the dismal moonlight... or even on those saturnine nights you never feel truly alone. (laughs) I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Horror Hill. Don't forget to tune in again next week, when I yet again regale you with a handful of tales to terrify. Plumbed from the most depraved depths of the human imagination. Tonight's episode featured tales from the very talented Mark Lukens and Michael Whitehouse. The Coffin Man was written by and presented to you courtesy of Mark Lukens. Mark has been writing since the second grade when his teacher called his parents in for a conference because the ghost story he'd written had her a little concerned. Since then... He's had several stories published and four screenplays optioned by producers in Hollywood. He's the author of many best-selling books, including The Ancient Enemy series, Sightings, The Exorcist's Apprentice, Devil's Island, Sleep Disorders, and The Dark Day series. He's a proud member of the Horror Writers Association. He grew up in Daytona Beach, Florida. But after many travels and adventures, he settled down near Tampa, Florida, with his wonderful wife and son, and a stray cat they adopted. He loves to hear from readers. You can find him at his official blog, www.marklukensbooks.wordpress.com. The name again is Mark, M-A-R-K, Lukens, L-U-K-E-N-S. You can also find more of his work and stay in touch at Amazon and on Twitter and Facebook. Tunnel 72F was written by and presented courtesy of Michael Whitehouse. Michael is a writer from Glasgow, Scotland. He dabbles in ghost stories, weird fiction, and dark fantasy. His stories have appeared in several published anthologies, and he has also written horror-themed plays that have toured across North America and Europe. Michael also works on a number of audio and film-related projects, including Talking Till Dawn, where he investigates true horror topics, the Ghastly Tales podcast, where he narrates and records music for his own stories, and the Ghastly Tales YouTube channel, where he produces short horror films and other videos with his Ghastly Tales team. Learn more about Michael and connect with him at michael-whitehouse.com or follow him on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram anytime. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Finally, thanks again to today's sponsor, Best Fiends, for their support of this show. And don't forget to download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Until next week, listener... When we meet up once again atop the horror hill for yet another dance with the darkness. I bid you good night. Sleep tight, listener. And whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted, and it's featured stories performed by, yours truly, Jason Hill. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Felipe Ojeda, Luke Hodgkinson, and Jesse Cornett. Final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshack. The program's artwork by yours truly, Jason Hill. Logo by Craig Groshack. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you like performed? I take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your work considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's submissions at simplyscarypodcast. Com. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on social media to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and our other programs. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for Chilling Tales for Dark Nights as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit the thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, You'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness... Has found you
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs